Have you ever caught yourself showing off in front of other people? I mean, have you ever found yourself just doing whatever it takes to get noticed, to be the center of attention? We often go to great lengths to get people to look, to marvel, to compliment, to focus on us. Some of us do outlandish things, uh, try to demonstrate a particular skill. We talk about ourselves where we become the hero. This was on display when Amy and I were dating in college. Full display one evening. I was trying to get her to notice, admire. I was trying my best at comedy. And somehow that ended up with her and her best friend and their moms watching my friend and I on the grass at the amphitheater at the University of Richmond in the evening when no one else was around, jumping around in a makeshift ballet. Don't even ask. I don't know why. <laughs> what in the world is going on? We're married now, so must have worked. Or sometimes we just want to show off the, the greatness of somebody else, right? <clears throat> somebody we admire. Hey, I want you to come watch this guy. Watch how awesome he is. He, he can take a round inflated piece of leather and throw it really accurately. Come watch that. We show off perceived greatness to others, but ultimately it really doesn't do them any good. Uh, that information has no power or ability to change their eternal life. But like the Colossians that we're learning about here in the book of Colossians, if your trust is in Christ, He is actually worth showing off because He's preeminent. He's almighty. He's the creator. He changes lives for all eternity. And he does this through the gospel, the very message that the Colossians had heard and believed. They had heard that God exists, that he is the highest and ultimate authority, and that he'd created everything, even including them, including you. And how God became a man, the man Jesus, that he lived a life that was perfect that he obeyed every aspect of God's right standard, that he displayed his power and his compassion, healing sickness instantly, bringing dead people back to life. The Colossian believers trusted that Jesus was crucified on the cross, dying in the place of sinners, though he had never sinned. God treating him like a sinner, punishing sin, upholding justice. Jesus displayed that he is God. After three days in the grave, he came back to life. Death had no hold on him. They had heard this message. They had believed this message. God had changed their hearts to love and trust him. Christ had rescued them from sin and death. God had made these people citizens of his kingdom, of heaven. He had forgiven their sin. And like the Colossian people, you must turn from sin and trust in Jesus alone. He is the truth and the only way to be in heaven. His greatness is worth showing off. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the city of Colossae because he had heard not only of this conversion, their faith, 
but also that deceptive people were showing up around the church gathering, false teachers. These folks were teaching church members things that that weren't true. And they were the modern-day equivalent of spiritual Facebook posts with five reasonable reasons why Jesus was just a good man. YouTube channels, clickbait, with three quick, surefire ways to be more godly, right? Christian book authors with the latest mystical experience and heavenly insight. The false teachers had shown up on the scene, and they were looking to capture anybody they could. They were taking the focus off of Christ and His words. They were passing judgment on the Christians, making them feel stupid and insufficient for trusting only in Jesus. They were claiming superior spiritual wisdom. They piled on rules, regulations, traditions, self-focus, made-up ideas about angels and visions. And they were trying to convince the church that their way was the better way, the more godly way. It sounded good, it sounded like Bible talk, but it was a lie. Last week, Rich helped us see from chapter 3 a saved sinner's spiritual attire. The idea that if Christ is our king, we're wearing new clothes. He rules our hearts, and that rule affects changes that cover us with new affections and actions and attitudes and a new allegiance to Jesus as the rightful king of our life. Verse 17 summarized it well when it said, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Well, today is where the rubber meets the road. I mean, in this text, we're going to see God calls us to live out those truths so clearly. Who do I wear these new clothes in front of? How do I wear them? And what are they going to reveal? The call this morning is to show off the authority of Christ and His rule in your heart, starting with your most fundamental relationships. And we're going to see four relationships where we can be a show-off. That is to show off Christ. And why show off Jesus as Lord from this particular text? Well, one author has said it this way, even texts that give instructions as to how we should behave reveal something about God. Seven times in this text, Christ is called Lord or Master. And in these few verses, there's at least 12 commands. The text is so straightforward, you could just remove the label and apply it directly to your forehead. And so what do we see? The first relationship of the four, show off Christ as Lord to your spouse. Look at the text, verse 18, chapter 3. Wives, Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The Apostle Paul's assumption was that the Colossians, the people there that had come to faith, understood God had directly and immediately created man, male and female, gifted them each with that specific gender identified at creation, and that he brought them together in marriage assign them with specific roles. And so, Paul is commanding that they now fulfill that role, displaying Christ's authority and Christ's will in their lives. 
so verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This is Christ's command to you. How do those words grip your heart? Submit. It can evoke an image of a domineering husband, right, just berating his wife. It can evoke mixed martial arts where one opponent is overpowering the other and the pain is so unbearable that he submits, he gives up, he loses. Far from mixed martial arts or being screamed at, the submission of a wife is willfully putting yourself under the leadership in the direction of your husband. The Christian women in Colossae, they needed to hear this because the false teaching and ideologies that had crept into the church were affecting even this. How has false teaching affected your role as a wife? Your marriage, wives, is the primary place God calls you to show off the lordship of Jesus. Your husband, he's received his marching orders from God. And when you married him, you enlisted under his leadership to serve and to help complete the mission. Whether you're more capable or smarter than him, you willingly set that aside for the sake of your Lord. Your husband might have the leadership role, but man, he will definitely fail if he doesn't have your support. He needs you desperately. How would your husband say you're doing? When you step in to lead and place yourself in his God-assigned role, what you show off is that you actually know better than Christ. It's like a private in the army upending his rank and leading his sergeant. It's out of line, soldier. That is not the position you've been given. But what a help when that same private not only follows the lead of the sergeant, but also brings help and insight, and they carry out the task together. If your marriage is out of line, repent. No longer look to usurp your husband's role. Now, the world might tell you, okay, yeah, whatever. This is just doormat theology. Ladies, just lay down and let your husband run right over you. For sure, it's been used to justify that kind of lifestyle. That's not what this text is teaching at all. Nor is it a command to follow your husband right into sin. Acts 5 tells us in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. So when shouldn't you submit? Well, in matters that contradict God's commands, into sin, in ways that promote physical abuse to yourself or a child. But submission that is fitting in the Lord, that's right and appropriate, it looks back to Christ. He gave up His will to do the Father's will. He said in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus willingly set aside His position in heaven when He came to earth. He humbled Himself. He took the form of a man Jesus was no doormat. His submission was for your good. 
Wives, where are you resisting your husband's leadership? Are there voices that you're listening to that oppose this command? What areas of life can you better show off your king by following your husband's lead? Husbands, look at verse 19. This is the Lord's command to you. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And you say, yeah, but, but I'm a Christian. Of course I love my wife. I mean, I married her, right? Why do I need to hear this? The lies of false teachers in the world devalue this kind of love. This isn't self-love. This puts the good and interests of your wife in front of your hobbies, your personal desires and wants, your money, your time. God defines love like this. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He showed off his great love with the ultimate sacrifice, the death of Christ, for your good, even when you hated him. When you love like Christ loves, you show kindness when she's irritable. You show compassion when she's hurting. You show understanding when hardship is pressing in. You show patience when you have really important things that you should be doing. You give of yourself, of your time, for her benefit, for her spiritual good. You lead her to Christ. And this love, it's not harsh. Why is that added on? Because, men, there, there's a way that we can do things, the things that we're supposed to do, with the wrong attitude and tone, isn't there? Do you know this? You want to know what your love is like? Ask your wife what your attitude and tone display about Jesus. Are you like a piece of sandpaper with her? Good and godly on one side, the smooth side, but whenever you're near her, just scratching off a few more layers until the relationship is just totally raw. Gruff, not talking, demanding, unfriendly. You're just irritated. You're making it known. Or are you a bullhorn, just blasting out commands at home and demands at home, trying to exercise your leadership role, making sure that your wife is submissive? Why? What has she done? What happened? Did she fail? Was there an unmet expectation? Was there a lack of submission? How has the Lord responded to your failures, husbands, and lack of submission to him? Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Oh, yeah, that's right. Husbands, we need to repent. When you die to yourself for the woman God gave you, it becomes obvious that he's changed you. It's obvious because in your flesh, that's not what you're like. So it becomes apparent that you're living under someone else's rule, namely his. So remember Christ. Remember how he is with you, gentle and compassionate. Follow his example. Tenderly love your wife. When are you most harsh with her? Ask yourself that question. 
in what ways does Christ's example help you express love to her? We're called to show off Christ as Lord to our spouse. The second relationship, we're called to show off Christ's Lord to our family, to our family. Look at verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Young believers, this is God's command to you. How's it going? Maybe you've come to trust in Jesus. Maybe you've even been baptized, and you read your Bible, and you study theology. There's just this one thing. When you're at home, you're miserable. You can't stand your parents, and you think your time could be better spent with your friends somewhere else. Is any of that true in your own heart? This is one of the first places the Lord commands you to live out His work in your life, right at home with mom and dad. It's more important than any other relationship you have as a young person. God gave you parents to raise you, teach you, feed you, fund you, house you, clean you, counsel you, help you, love you, through thick and thin. What false teaching, what world philosophies have crept into your heart and just turned this truth upside down? Is it from well-meaning friends counseling you? From the internet? From the movies you watch? They can take on the same position that the false teachers had taken in Colossae. When your parents look at your life, what do they see? Do they see the lordship of Christ? God says your obedience, that is doing, acting on, complying with your mom and dad's directions, is the litmus test. It makes it evident that you're pleasing Christ. And it mimics Jesus. The God of the universe became a child and obeyed his mom and dad. Luke chapter 2 says that he went down with his mom and dad to Nazareth and was submissive to them. How does knowing Christ obeyed his parents change how you think about interacting with mom and dad? Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This is God's command to you, dads, and even parents. This is exactly what you're not supposed to do. The very thing you're excellent at, prodding your kids to the point of irritation, crushing the life out of their soul with a look, just doing and saying things you know is going to embitter them. What do you like with your kids? You have a God-given place of authority. How do you wield it? Is there thoughtless reactionary words just flowing out of your mouth? Or the same old repeated cliches, responses? Maybe your response is correct and true, but it's just unwise. Wisdom's not merely truth. Wisdom is truth applied with skill in just the right time, in just the right tone and inflection. Wisdom draws conclusions after listening. Wisdom's prayerful. Do you remember Job and his friends in the Old Testament? They were incredibly knowledgeable about God, but their words just weren't wise. 
They were quick to speak, and their conclusions and their counsel provoked and incited Job, brought about bitterness and anger. They were a huge discouragement to him. Dads, you could be the cause of your kids just giving up. How can you better model Christ for them? How does Christ encourage you? What words and responses can you change at home that's going to better represent him? We excel in discouragement sometimes as parents because it's just so easy to spot the first thing that's wrong. The tiny blob of food on the cheek of the child who's cleaned up, dressed up, buttoned up. We can miss all of that. And in doing so, the opportunity for encouragement, just trying to fix the one thing. You know, Christ was quick to encourage. Think about how gracious he was with Peter. Even after Peter's complete failure at Christ's trial, you know, there wasn't a blob of food on Peter's cheek. He had run headfirst into a sewage dump of sin, denying he even knew Jesus. He even just went back to a life of fishing. And yet, the words of Jesus to Peter, I mean, he loved him. He encouraged, he restored him. He turned him back from giving up. Parents, dads, show your kids Christ is your Lord. The third relationship that we're called to show Christ as Lord is with our coworkers. Look at verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. The word for bond servants is most accurately translated slave. Slavery has been a part of our sin-filled world for most of human history. It's still happening today in many parts of the world with many different people groups. That fact is further example of man's inability to self-correct and fix the world, make things right. Even after thousands of years, it's still happening. But one day it will cease when all sin is brought to an end and God comes back. Well, the New Testament spoke right into this sinful institution, and Christ fully understood what it meant to give up his rights and to be treated harshly to the point of death. And the Christians, they lived with the effects of slavery, and yet we're called in the midst of it to exemplify Christ. You might not be physically enslaved here in the U.S., but these principles apply in your jobs. There's a reason we say, I've been slaving away all day at work. As an employee, you're somebody under authority. Your time, your effort, serving someone else. Their words, their desires, their will, directing your actions. And so how you respond to them is a telltale sign of which way the wind is blowing in your heart and life. Are there favorable winds? of change brought about by Christ or the dead doldrums, someone who does nothing. Look at the text. It says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. If you see evidence of these two qualities in your life, you need to repent. Turn back from them. Eye service is just when you're, on, you're being watched, right? 
jumping up right as the boss walks in the door. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I've, I've been here all day working, man, just working really hard. What does this display about Christ? He's your king. He's changed your heart, but you're no different than anybody else. People-pleasing, where you're just motivated to do whatever it takes to make people happy in the moment. No, our work is to be, look back at the text, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, whatever you do. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. This is what you want. A head knowledge that's looking beyond 5.30, looking beyond Friday, looking beyond a paycheck, looking beyond the promotion, looking to being in your Lord's presence. That mindset overflows in sincerity. Working not just for show, but with simple, clear motives. And working heartily with meaningful effort, a right motivation. Man, every employer longs for employees that work heartily. You know, like, like a good Chick-fil-A worker. Just crushing it. You've seen them. The one that's just so thankful to have a job and is doing it to please the Lord. No matter who's watching or isn't. How can the authority and preeminence of Christ give you the ability to work with that kind of integrity? Look back at his work. If the Lord of the universe is willing to work it out on earth, you can be sure he set the example for us. Do y'all remember, there was a TV show called Undercover Boss. Uh, the owners of the companies would disguise themselves and then they would go down amongst the employees and walk in their shoes set an example and see how they were doing. The workers were being watched by their boss and they didn't even know it. And it became apparent what type of employee they were. Sometimes it was funny what they said in his presence or her presence. And it would also reveal that the boss was trying to understand and appreciate the work being done. Christ was the greatest undercover boss ever. <laughs> he didn't just come to take a peek. He came and lived among his creation. He walked in the shoes of men. He did the work. He perfectly obeyed the Father. He worked when no one was watching, putting in long, weary hours, exerting his strength to the point of sweating great drops of blood. Do you remember that? All of his work, living his life perfectly, protecting his disciples, proclaiming the gospel, teaching the scriptures, healing the sick, raising the dead, having compassion on the needy, always speaking the truth, forgiving sinners, was about to culminate at the cross, and he was up late working when no one was watching. His job at that moment was to pray. He was talking to God. He was a faithful worker. He did it from the heart. He wasn't doing it to be seen by people. He was pleasing the Lord. Christ said, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. The work he did and the way he did it showed off that he loved God. 
Keep your eyes on Christ at work. Remember his example. You represent the king. He's going to reward you. And that reward will last for all eternity. You know, God created work from the foundations of the earth. Before the curse, Adam was working in the garden. It's good. It's right. Even in heaven, there's going to be work. It's going to be blessed work, but it's going to be work nonetheless. Luke 19, 17 records that there's going to be oversight and management even of cities. And so, as we do well in our jobs, we display something of God's intent for work. But there's a warning here, isn't there? Verse 25, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there's no partiality. Paybacks. You get what's coming. You reap what you sow. The reward for sinning, for misrepresenting God's character as a believer, there are earthly consequences that come. Being a Christian doesn't absolve you from earthly consequences. God's not partial in that regard. If I take a hammer and hit my thumb as hard as I can, it's going to hurt like crazy. If the unbeliever next to me does the same thing, same result. Doing work wrong, stealing, lying, slacking, slandering, complaining, cheating, God will allow the real consequences of those actions to come to roost even in a believer's life. You may be going to heaven, but if you're a wrongdoer, you could be going to jail in the meantime. Look at verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Bosses, this is God's command to you. You've been given this role of authority. How do you deal with the people that you oversee? Like, if you could become the undercover boss and go in amongst everyone that works for you, what would you hear them saying? The call here is for you not to take pride in your own position, to, to push off favoritism and look for ways to, to interact with every employee with the same degree of care and concern, to bring about what's right, what's without partiality. And look back at that verse. The key here is knowledge. Knowing, so treat in this way, knowing that you have a master in heaven knowing about Christ. The thoughts about him and his relationship to you have a direct bearing on how you interact with your employees. It's really true for the whole passage, but you're accountable to the Lord in heaven, bosses. How do you want Christ to deal with you? Do you want him to be gracious and merciful when you mess up, fail, slack off, get caught in sin? I think you do. That should inform your management of people. What might you change at work in order to display something of Christ's justice and fairness to your own employees? The final relationship we're called to show off Christ as Lord to the world, how we relate to others in the world. Look at verse 2, chapter 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. This is God's command for us all. 
And most would say prayer is one of the hardest things in the Christian life. Why is that? The actual act is quite simple. You open your mouth and you talk to God. You thank Him and you ask Him for things. What makes this so hard? I think it's the setting aside of time, time when we could be going or doing something else because we think it gets in the way. We can't see who we're talking to. We don't receive an auditory response. The call is to continue steadfastly in it, to not give up, to keep on unwavering, just like Dory. Just keep going, just keep going, right? Don't give up. I think here of our brother, Jordan Minnick, uh, he continues to pursue corporate prayer. He's steadfast in its importance. He's unwavering his commitment to get the church together weekly to pray, to ask God for help, for mercy, to turn people's hearts to Christ. And that's a help to you. What a help. Here's a direct way the church body can help you carry out this command. And we're also called in this thing of prayer to be watchful, to be alert, to be looking, to be attentive. That language points right back to fortified cities with night watchmen on the lookout for sudden attacks. The watchful eye didn't waver, didn't sleep. The city was prepared and protected. In Luke 22, the disciples were called by Jesus one night, the night of his, uh, before his crucifixion, to be watchful in prayer right before he was going to be tried. They wavered and they fell asleep. What were they supposed to be watching out for, looking for? The enemy of sleep? The quickness of their hearts to turn away from Jesus? Talking to him keeps this at bay. Thanking God for things, opportunities, and provisions doesn't allow the enemy of sin and Satan a chance to get inside your heart and mind and wreak havoc, just like the enemy would come into a city and wreak havoc. Constant communication. Look at verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul wanted the Colossian church to pray for him. He was chained up in a Roman prison. He was asking that God would make an opportunity, even while he was in chains, to be able to preach the gospel, and that people who hadn't heard would hear it and believe it, would be forgiven. This command has a, to pray has a gospel focus, requesting to God an open door. That's just a unique, it's a metaphor for really uh, God creating a unique opportunity or providing an entry point that he would set up circumstances. The Lord did this recently in my life last week. Our whole family was on vacation staying at a beach house down in Sandbridge. And one quiet morning, my nine-year-old nephew and I were working on a puzzle together. It was an underwater picture, and the Lord opened a door for me as we talked. He began asking me questions about the Bible, real, honest questions. And we moved from talking about the picture of the whale to talking about Jonah inside of a great fish, to talking about preaching, to talking about God creating everything to talking about how man turned against God, 
and how punishment comes on man and how Christ took the punishment and died on the cross and came back to life. The Lord created that very unique opportunity. Only God can do that. Pray for them in your own lives and pray for them in the lives of our missionaries who are ministering the gospel faithfully around the world. Because the gospel to many is a mystery. It was a bit of a mystery to my nephew. He had real honest questions that he was asking. He was trying to figure it out and put it together. And I was trying to make it clear to bring understanding. Christ spent an incredible amount of time talking to God in prayer. He was super busy. He literally had the weight of the world on his shoulders, not figuratively. He would disappear up on hills and mountains, praying to God. He prayed to God with his dying breath on the cross. What does the time or lack of time you spend talking to God reveal about the lordship of Jesus? How does, how does Christ's example in prayer encourage your heart, encourages mine? It makes me want to pray more. Look at verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. The command here is for skillful living as it regards interacting with people outside of the church. This isn't to make sure that when you're out on the street, you avoid dangerous-looking people, the outsiders of society. Now, this is, this is following Paul's request to be able to spread the gospel. This is for every believer. It's for you. The idea of walking is the metaphor for living out your life, the way you go about each day. Because life takes time, and you have a limited amount. Spend each moment well. Don't waste it. Don't waste your life doing everything but interacting with unbelievers. Figure out how to schedule your life so that you can maximize your time with the people who don't know Jesus. Wisdom is truth, skillfully applied in specific situations. In this command, you're to take what you know about Jesus and make it known and apply it skillfully to an unbelieving world. How do you do that? Well, you open up your mouth and you let the truth of Christ come out. And it's not just speaking nicely with people, gracious. No, it's gracious speech that you're commanded to have is it's clarified by the end of the verse. Right? It says, outsiders... Um, Non-Christians are coming up and they're asking questions, presumably about Jesus, because it's obvious He's your Lord by the way you live. And so spiritual, winsome, attractive words make clear the mystery of Christ. And these are seasoned with salt. Just as salt enhances flavor and makes tasteless food taste good, these words are not the same old thing. 
They create desire to listen with interest, with enjoyment. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. If you're salt without any flavor, then you're just a rock. Our conversations can be so boring, so predictable, tasteless, really like a dry piece of bread. But man, throw a little salt on that bread. Make it a cracker. (laughs) Bring some interest and purpose into the things you say. Talk about Jesus. Say who he is, God in the flesh. Right? The Apostle Paul knew this firsthand. And in Acts 17, he had taken time and showed up in a public square in Athens. The people there, they valued talk, but it was really predictable. And so Paul got things moving. He just started talking about Christ and how he rose from the dead. And dude, people started asking all kinds of questions. He had salted the oats of that thing, and the flavor had come, and people wanted more of it. Jesus' words when he spoke, man, he gathered crowds, didn't he? He used his words well. He always spoke truth that was gracious and compelling. How does this command confront your use of speech, both in person and online? How does Christ's words help bring new purpose to the things that you talk about? You know, we, we always want to know when we're reading the Bible, yeah, but just what am I supposed to do? This passage makes it crystal clear. In your God-given station in life, show off Christ as Lord. Wives, defer your will to follow your husband's lead. Husbands, tenderly put your wife's interest in good before yours. Children, willingly do what your parents tell you to do. Fathers, parents, turn off autopilot and encourage your children with actions and words. Employees, serve your employer by working hard with diligence and integrity. Employers, do right by your employees. Show them grace. Believers, pray for, take time to, speak to unbelievers around you. We can't carry out these commands on our own. We'll fail. But as we look at Christ and his love for us and the thankfulness that wells up as we look at him, we'll put him on display. We'll show off what he's like as we serve others. And then when we fail and they fail us to show off Christ, we'll forgive as he's forgiven us. Let's pray.